electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange, everybody. Thank you, Leslie. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. Two deals dominating the headlines, starting with the deal that Disney and Charter just struck in time for subscribers to see tonight's NFL game on ESPN. What are the terms? What does it mean for the media stocks? We'll have more on that shortly. Plus, a win for Qualcomm today as Apple sticks with the supplier for three more years, signaling its own chips aren't quite ready yet and on the eve of its new iPhone product launch tomorrow. We'll look at the implications. And Instacart ain't worth what it once was. Its valuation a fraction of what it was a couple of years ago, but is that actually bullish for investors who get in now? That plus the latest on Arm, which is reportedly seeing strong demand ahead of its offering later this week. And China's economic problems should come as a surprise to no one, says Derek Scissors. He says we've had 14 years to see this coming. The question is where does he see things going from here? And what does it mean for U.S. companies like Apple and Tesla? First, let's get the latest on these markets, though, and finally some green dust. Some green, but we're off the best levels of the session. But still, the bulls might kind of take some solace in what's happening right now because medium term has been a very interesting story overall for the markets, losing some steam. And we have lost some steam in just the intraday session as well. The S&P 500, the more broader measure, 44.79, sitting almost on top of its 50-day average price on a rolling basis. Some traders tend to use some of those levels as perhaps indicators of trends. So it's sitting right at a critical level right now, up about one half of 1% or 22 points. At the highs of the session, we were up about 33 points. And even at the lows of the session, we were up about 10. That gives you an idea of the trading range so far today. So kind of tilting in the middle of that, but generally positive. The Dow Industrial is up one quarter of 1%, 34,655. And the NASDAQ Composite outperforming up three quarters of 1%, up 97 points to 13,855. More on that NASDAQ trade in just a bit. One other place to watch is what's happening with cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, because we're seeing levels right now at 25,100 and change that are just at the low end of the range that we've seen kind of since mid-June. You can kind of see here that's the upper end of the trading range so far and the lower end is where we're sitting at right now. What I also want to point out is something that some traders and analysts are looking at, and that is the crossing of the 50-day average price on a moving basis down towards the 200-day or longer-term price. Some folks may look at this and say maybe this is a change in the direction overall in the market, a change in trend to the downside. But Bitcoin price is trying to hold on to that 25,000 level, depending on which, which indicator you look at. It did dip briefly below that at one point today. Now, on the stock-specific side, watch Oracle shares right now. They're reporting after the closing bell today. Artificial intelligence, their Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, OCL, will be a big part of that story. Right now, it's up about three quarters of 1%. And Oracle, by the way, the options market is pricing in a roughly four and a half to 5% move in the stock up or down. And just to give you context, that's historically what it has been over the last eight quarters worth of reports. And then the semiconductors. 
Qualcomm you'll get to in just a bit, Kelly. I know this. That's probably one of the only bright spots in the semiconductor trade so far today. But Advanced Micro, Lamb Research, KLA Corp, NVIDIA, all among with some of the bigger laggards in the S&P 500 today, continuing that medium-term downtrend that we've seen in some of these chip stocks. I'll send things back over to you, Kelly. All right, Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Staying with semis, Qualcomm shares are jumping more than 4% today after Apple unexpectedly renewed a deal for 5G modems ahead of its big iPhone launch tomorrow. Apple had been expected to start using its own internally developed modem next year. And my next guest is warning that risks are growing for Apple for a myriad of reasons. Tensions with China, the emergence of AI, even weak consumer demand for the latest devices. Joining me now is Laura Martin. She's senior internet and media analyst at Needham. CNBC tech correspondent Steve Kovac is with us as well. Welcome to you both. And Laura, it doesn't seem like this Qualcomm, I don't know, the Apple shares that aren't moving much on this. The larger questions, I think, are still probably just China and demand. Agreed 100 percent. Like this, like it looks like maybe Biden is trying to thaw relationships with China. That's best for Apple and Disney, who have big operations in China. Each of them are about 20 percent of their revenue on Apple's side and 20 percent of theme park revenue for Disney. So it'd be really great if we didn't go to war either figuratively or literally with China. So it's interesting you say that because obviously the president's been in Vietnam. He was just in, in, in India. Uh, lately, he's been corralling uh, allies like Korea and others in, in Japan to kind of form this. It looks like, unfortunately, the U.S. is preparing for a more tense future with China. You know, it has these agreements with India to kind of build out its own. I don't want to call it Belt and Road, but kind of to push back a little bit. So how, where and how should we read the signals that you think the administration, and maybe it's Ramondo's trip and, and more to come, is trying to thaw things? I think what they're trying to say is they're going to make these countries choose, right? They're going to put them in a position of, look, if you want to do business with the U.S., which is the 20% of global GDP, you need to keep open, you need to be friendly with the U.S. So they're not going to allow them to take China's side. So, you know, and I think that just negotiates from a position of strength because both China and America understand that they're worth more together than opposed to one another. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what they're trying to do is get these um, traditional like regional allies of China into the U.S. basket of um, closer relations. And one more, and then I want to bring Steve in, Laura. But w- when we lay out kind of your bear case on Apple, one leg of the stool seems to be China, another weak consumer demand. Um, maybe you can add to that. What do you think kind of the biggest concerns are for you with the stock? So, yeah, definitely the China demand, which would near term threaten 20 percent of their revenue uh, now that the China, Apple isn't allowed to bring their devices into government offices in China anymore. But secondly, more importantly to me, this generative AI, large language models, my opinion is over the next decade, almost every business is going to have to integrate generative AI to either lower its costs or to drive its revenue. So, of course, Meta and Apple will do that for themselves. But who's going to make money are the arms dealers in the cloud. So that's AWS, Amazon. That's Google's three large language models over at Alphabet. And it's Microsoft with OpenAI. So those are going to be the backbone of American business, in my opinion, in the next 10 years. And they get the benefit of charging, let's say, a 30 percent tax on every revenue dollar of every business in America. Apple does not. That's really interesting. Okay, so Steve, one of the things that made me think twice was an investor I follow, Vitaly Katzenelson, wrote uh, in the past week or so about how bullish he is on, I kid you not, Apple's new headset. 
because he said, unlike the kind of meta offering, which is sealed off from the world and more of a, a pure um, VR offering, Apple's is more AR. It's augmented reality. It, it even simulates your eyes so that if you and I were talking and I'm wearing it, I, I could kind of exactly. you, you could feel like you're talking to me. So is, is Apple with this headset potentially going to be able to capitalize on the next wave for product demand, much like it has with the iPhone for the past 15 years? Yeah, if they do, Kelly, it's going to take a long time. Look, I used the Vision Pro when Apple unveiled it uh, earlier this summer, back in June. And look, it, it's very similar in theory and concept, just not in execution as what Meta already has. They have their own Pro headset that, oper- you know, you know, feature, if you go by down by the specs of what it can do, they're very similar devices. Apple just executed it better. The visuals are better. The hand tracking is better. The eye tracking is better. What you just said about having that sense of presence in the room mm-hmm. is a lot better. But it's also 3500 bucks. It's not coming out till <laughs> next year. It's going to be incredibly limited availability at first. U.S. only, Apple stores only, before they expand from there. So if it does take off, it's going to take quite a bit. It's not going to be with this first version, though, Kelly. Final word, Steve, as we turn back to tomorrow's event, which is much more just about the iPhone refresh. I mean, these events typically are a bearish uh, catalyst for Apple and for suppliers for some period of time. Yeah, usually what we see, I think we saw Apple shares up about a percent. I don't know where we're at now, but look, this always happens before an iPhone event, the buy the rumor, sell the news uh, type of thing. But the real thing I think everyone watching now should be looking out for is whether or not these rumors about a price increase actually takes place. Like we said at the top of this segment, Tim Cook actually told me this himself last month, that demand, especially in the U.S. for smartphones, is just falling. And so to make up for that, do they feel like they can raise prices on those pro phones? We know people are willing to pay more for those pro phones. We know last year they couldn't make enough of those pro phones uh, to sell to people, so maybe they can carry that over this year. So that's going to be the thing to watch more so than anything the gadgets can do themselves, Kelly. Yep, shares have gone nowhere the past three months. Uh, and Steve, one reason I love iPhone launch events is because they happen at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, yes, so I'll be here they, 24 hours with yes. you. Uh, we appreciate it. Live from Cupertino, in fact, Steve will be out at Apple headquarters tomorrow, and we will have full coverage of that launch event uh, right here beginning at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Laura, stay right there as we turn our attention to the other big deal news today. Of course, the fact that the standoff between Disney and Charter has come to an end. Kind of expected this, didn't you? Just in time for Monday Night Football, Disney shares rebounding from their lowest close in nearly a decade. Real question becomes, what were the terms and concessions? We bring in Julia Borston. Julia, what do we know so far? Well, Disney and Charter are announcing what they call a transformational agreement. What sources tell me is a modern melding of linear TV and digital distribution that sets a precedent and gives a huge boost to the reach of Disney Plus with ads. Now, that ad supported here for Disney Plus will be included in Spectrum TV's select video packages, not for free, but at what they call a wholesale arrangement guaranteed for all of Spectrum's video subscribers. ESPN Plus will be included in Spectrum TV's select plus video packages. And when ESPN launches its direct-to-consumer service, it will be included um, and offered to Spectrum TV select customers. Plus, Charter says it will sell all of Disney's D2C services to its broadband-only customers. Now, while this deal won't impact Disney's highest-profile channels, Spectrum is fully dropping Freeform, Disney XD, and some other channels. But that is far outweighed by new compensation for Disney Plus and the upside from having a bigger 
your audience for ads on Disney Plus. And Charter also has new value to retain its pay TV subscribers. And this is all really in many ways, Kelly, seen as a win-win as both of these partners in this new, uh, new video ecosystem are trying to figure out how to attract and retain subscribers. Back Julia, appreciate it. Laura, let's see if you think it is a win-win. What's your res uh, in initial response as we continue to await further details? I sure do. I agree with the beautiful Julie Bornstein perfectly, meaning that I really think this is great for Disney because it lets them keep 70% of ESPN's revenue comes from those charter fees, plus they have 30% advertising. It lets them keep 14 million households in America their signal in front of all that for ABC and ESPN and all the programming at Disney. So I agree with that. Big win for Disney. Gives them competitive advantage over Netflix because Netflix gets none of these fees from the linear TV ecosystem. And what it does is send us back to the linear TV ecosystem. will continue to degrade at 5% a year and not 20% a year. Right. So great for Charter also, but great for Disney as well. Interesting. Uh, Julia, forgive me, but do we know if, um, you know, kind of including any of the Disney bundles uh, for Charter? That, that's one thing Charter wanted was that people, um, you know, who were Charter subs would get access to Hulu or ESPN Plus or, or Disney Plus as part of that package now. Is that in here or no? Well, yeah, so that was the key piece of this, Kelly, is that is that Disney said, if you're going to get Disney Plus for your subscribers, you're going to need to pay extra for it. Got Charter it. was saying, Disney Plus, we want to be able to offer that for free. So what they arranged here is that they are paying a wholesale fee to Disney for Disney Plus with uh -huh. ads. What that means is that if, if you're a Charter subscriber, you will get access to Disney Plus with ads um, as a for a wholesale fee that Charter is paying. So what that means is that Disney is going to get many many more people um, who are going to be watching Disney Plus and therefore exposed to their advertising. And then also Disney gets that wholesale fee. It's not the retail fee, uh, but it's also not nothing, which is what Charter is was it, offering initially. That, that's fascinating. And some some traders and investors were thinking it could go that route. Julie, do, so there's no extra cost to Charter subscribers? Um, so this is all part, from what I understand, of the negotiation where, you know, every every time there's one of these negotiations, Charter has to pay a little bit more to Disney. And by the way, they are paying more for the channels that they're keeping. They're not going to be paying for Disney XD anymore, but they are paying um, a, a rate increase. Um, and then as part of that rate increase, they're going to be paying a wholesale fee and then able to therefore include Disney Plus with ads for their customers. So, of course, Kelly, we know these pay TV, um, they, uh, companies that offer pay TV, they do increase prices every once in a while. So this, I'm sure, is sort of seen as part of that equation. Yeah, fascinating. Um, okay, so so as we back this up, Laura, I think the central point is exactly what you said, that, you know, we're just going to continue to see 5% annual declines and not a big 20% kind of event. Um, does that still leave Disney as vulnerable as you previously thought in the sense of, hey, they should just sell to Apple or something to that effect? Or does this give them a little bit stronger ground to stand on for a while? You know, I think that this is a melting ice cube, and this is way more important that Disney kept ESPN on the linear TV ecosystem because it's really important for Warner Brothers and it's really important for Paramount that the linear TV bundle sort of like dissolves slowly, not quickly. But um, yes, this now means we have another 10 years of free cash flow from the linear TV bundle, which gives those companies more content, the ability to spend more content to compete with Netflix and YouTube user-generated content and video games. 
because it's becoming an attention economy. Right. So competition is for anything with time. So you really want this revenue stream coming from Charter, Comcast, Altis, because it gives you more money to invest in more content and try to retain attention. Yeah, and we see Disney shares up about a percent, WBD up two and a half percent. And with the debt load they have, to your point, that cash flow becomes all the more crucial. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you both very, very much today. We appreciate it. Julia Borson and Laura Martin. Still to come, she said, finally some signs of life for China's economy. So are all the concerns about its looming collapse or lost decade overblown? We'll debate that. But first, is it time to look past the CPI print? With the next number on tap this week, we'll look at which inflation data is most moving the markets and whether it matters as much to Fed officials now as it did earlier this year. And as we head to break, let's get a quick look at stocks. You see the Dow is underperforming today with its 75-point gain. The S&P's up half a percent. The Nasdaq up three quarters of a percent. Even the Russell's in the green. And the 10-year yield is back to almost 430. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's a big week for markets with CPI, PPI, and consumer sentiment data all ahead. But one of my next guests says the Fed won't care about the data, and the other says you shouldn't care either. So what does matter for investors here? Joining me now is David Bonson, Bonson Group Chief Investment Officer, and Brian Weinstein is Morgan Stanley Investment Management's Head of Fixed Income. Welcome to both of you. All right, David, are you just gonna, what, what are you following then? Football, what, what matters for investors? Well, unfortunately, football doesn't matter for investors, but it certainly mattered last night for this Cowboy fan. But um, oh, in no. terms of what, what the Fed will do, I think that the Fed is following markets. Markets are not following the Fed. And I think it is a fait accompli that they're going to pause again at the end of September. Futures are still indicating a sort of a jump ball around the November meeting. The odds are a little weighted towards, again, no new movement but at this point, the CPI issues are very, very clear. Oil prices may very well bring headline levels higher, but the shelter housing number that has been so distorted, yeah. so lagged and so wrong for so long, that's coming down and the Fed knows it. Sure. And obviously, rents are going to come down even more given the supply coming online. Brian, you say CPI just doesn't matter like it once did. No, I think same lines, right? I mean, the Fed did a lot. We have to wait and see what they've accomplished. The numbers are going to move around a bit, but the, the exciting part is over. And so watching every single number, are they going to go, not go? They've told us, right? They want to pause. They want to watch it. And I think really deep down, they don't want to do any more. Mm. Uh, time will tell. 
market will force their hand potentially, but not for a while. So are both of you saying that even a hotter than expected CPI number you don't think would force their hand? I would argue maybe if, if inflation expectations in the consumer sentiment print, like if those all of a sudden jump to 5%, but even then, Brian, what do you think? And expectations have been pretty well anchored. Tips, break-evens haven't done much. Sure, there could be reasons why the Fed would want to do more, but I haven't seen, I mean, listen, what I'm surprised they haven't done is to point us away from the month-to-month CPI data. If they were worried about something else, they should probably tell us now, but I, I don't think that even a hot number here is going to force is their hand. Is it jobs then? What becomes the number one, the tier one data? Yeah, I, I think what we need to look at is some more forward-looking data, right? Not the monthly jobs print, but, you know, claims has been well-behaved. Yeah. I said rental information is coming out, and, and there's some reason to believe in some softness out there. Uh, but, yeah, I think moving away from every single month CPI number and every single month's uh, employment number as the thing that's going to change the next meeting, it's, it's time to do that. What would you say, David, are the most important kind of data points now to follow? Well, one of them I don't want to be cynical about, but I think it needs to be mentioned. It's the fact that we're going into an election year. Mm -hmm. And I just don't believe that the Fed wants to be raising rates going in the election year. And that's not, and Kelly, that's not a partisan comment. Right. It could be either party in office. It's just simply that it can be perceived as, as putting a thumb on the scale into the national politic. They didn't touch rates all of 2016 when their dot plot said they were going to raise rates four times. Hmm. And so you go back to 94 and the heat that Greenspan took in those midterms when they were raising rates in the middle of that first Bill Clinton term, they've mostly stayed out of the politics since. And I think hiking rates when they're already at 550 basis points going into election year, it's just very unlikely. So let me kind of translate this also to, you know, David, obviously you follow bonds more. I'm sorry, Brian, bond more. David, you're more of a stocks guy. And when I, I looked at your list and, and the, your, the fact that you're looking at KenView jumped out to me because KenView, okay, one of the newest, you know, most esoteric stocks, owner of Tylenol, you know, the spinoff obviously broke below its IPO price and has been getting a lot of attention ahead of the big IPO week that we're having. Why do you think this is an area for opportunity? Well, again, we already owned it. It just didn't exist because we owned a Johnson & Johnson, and it was a third of the Johnson & Johnson balance sheet was this consumer products division. And so now we have a separated entity that has a lower multiple, a higher dividend yield, and like you mentioned, Tylenol, Band-Aid, shampoo, all of these wonderful consumer products uh, that we believe in, and we believe it's at a, a multiple opportunity that will do well. It sold off last week because a lot of people got KenView at a 7% discount hmm. in the spinoff that J&J did, so they were taking advantage of that free money. Now we think it sort of reprices, resets, and we think KenView is a long-term hold. All right, and of course it fits more with where you are in the market. A little worried still about some of the valuations, high tech, that kind of thing. Brian, let's talk bonds. <laughs> I yeah. see the 10-year inching back up towards 430 today. Uh, to quote your colleagues from a different part of the company, is this the, the, the buy of a lifetime? I don't think we're there yet, Kelly. I mean, election years are interesting, right? I mean, I, I don't want to play politics, but you have to think about it, right? Who's going to cut spending into an election year? Some parties may want to cut taxes. Some parties may want to spend more. I think both involve higher deficits. We already sure. have a pretty high one to start. So a, for, a 430 tenure looks high because we're so used to it being so low. But why not just take a two-year 
you know, a, a two-year treasury or a money market fund. And or, would you? Yeah, yeah at, at I would. At these rates? So yeah. you'd, you'd be comfortable owning and seeing the opportunity at the short end, but not so much in the long uh, run. It's very tempting to say we're there, opportunity of a lifetime, things are going to slow. I think there's many reasons to believe. Look at the shape of the yield curve. Mm -hmm. right? If the Fed eased 100 basis points next year and took us from 5.5 to 4.5, the tissues tend to go back to 100 steep. Hmm. That puts tens higher than here. Hmm. So if the Fed continued to hike rates, wanted to slow things down, was being hawkish, I'd have a different view. But I think I think we're early still. I think that we could see higher rates out the yield curve, especially in 10s and 30s. Do you guys ever get in fights internally? Over oh, <laughs> it's everyone's favorite topic, right? I mean, we'll find out. Everyone has a view. 50-50 proposition. I think this is one of those rare times where times are, are aligned. And, uh, and even though it seems, yes, we fight about it all the time. Uh, but I do think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more confident than usual that it's, it's going higher uh, yeah. over the next six, like, six to 12 months. I think a lot of married couples are, uh, are having some similar <laughs> discussions. Brian Weinstein, David Bonson, thank you both very much for your time today and your thoughts on the markets. And tomorrow, don't miss the unveiling of our fifth annual Financial Advisor 100 list. We will speak with the head of this year's top firm. I don't even know who it is. This is going to be a reveal for me, too. It'll be right here at 1 p.m. for the full list tomorrow. Go to CNBC.com slash FA100. And coming up, Instacart slashing its valuation way below the $39 billion mark from a couple of years back. Is bad news for the IPO market actually good news for investors? We'll talk about that ahead. As we go to break, here's the Dow heat map with Verizon and 3M leading the way today, while Chevron and Walgreens are lagging. Dow's underperforming as well, but up about a quarter percent with most major averages in the green. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The Moroccan government reported more than 2,600 people are now confirmed dead and more than 2,500 people injured after a devastating earthquake hit the country last week. International aid has mobilized to help. Teams from, of doctors uh, from Doctors Without Borders are in Morocco helping determine the needs of the earthquake victim and working with local authorities. The U.K. government said they have deployed 60 search and rescue teams with specialized equipment to extract people from the rubble in very tough mountainous areas. Moderna announced a deal with German drug developer Imatix to develop cancer vaccines and therapies. The company said the deal would allow Moderna to use Imatix drug discovery platform to develop mRNA-based cancer vaccines, uh, the same type of vaccine uh, that was used to fight COVID. A backup plane and spare parts are heading to India to pick up Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who is stranded with his delegation after the G60 G20 summit. Excuse me. Uh, a government official said the Prime Minister will either fly home on the backup or wait for the broken one to be repaired. Kelly, back to you. 
a number of, of jokes I'm sure they'll come up with about yes. that. And we just hope he gets home safely. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Tyler Thank Matheson. You. Coming up, companies with high exposure to China have been underperforming the market since early last year, according to Piper Sandler. And things may only get worse. We'll talk about that next. Speaking of China, not just the iPhone being barred from state entities, Piper also saying that during a recent government meeting, Teslas were banned from being nearby. But China exposure doesn't concern Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas, who just upgraded Tesla to overweight today and named it a top pick, saying its supercomputer Doja will be the biggest value driver from here and could become Tesla's AWS. Shares are surging almost 10% today. A whole lot more when we come back. Welcome back to The Exchange. China's economy finally showing some signs of life after months of dismal data. Its CPI eked out a tenth of 1% gain year on year. Social credit rose as well, a leading gauge for GDP. But it's going to take a lot more than that to right the ship, according to my next guests. AEI's Derek Scissors points out that while the economy may be a little better now than in 2022, there are still multiple serious problems ahead, while Piper Sandler says that Beijing ramping up its Made in China campaign is an enormous red flag for certain U.S. industries in particular. And joining me now is Derek Scissors, Asia economist at the American Enterprise Institute, along with Nancy Lazar, chief global economist at Piper Sandler. Welcome to you both. Nancy, let me just start with you because the autos piece of this is really starting to get a lot more attention. What are China's ambitions here? And does it pose a big uh, potential problem for stocks like uh, Tesla? China is trying to become self-sufficient, quite frankly, no different than what we are trying to do here in the United States. We're both trying to be less dependent on one another. And so the bottom line is basically China is done driving multinational earnings as they've been doing, say, for the past uh, 20 years. It, the tr transition actually started the last cycle, but it's obviously in, uh, intensifying here as we move through 2023 into 2024. So the, the message to, to U.S. companies in China is tread lightly. Uh, they want to become self-sufficient. That means using less U.S. products. And so we think that they will continue to be a major headwind to a lot of U.S. multinationals. Sure. Why do you think autos in particular, Nancy? This is getting more attention. You know, the journal has written about how BYD is the world's biggest car maker. You know, their vehicles are showing up everywhere. Is there a difference between just, you know, a competitive marketplace where they have an edge and um, to kind of put it more bluntly, the risk that China floods the auto market globally with all of its kind of products and pipeline? That's not new. They've done it before. They did it with steel. They did it with solar panels. They need something to, uh, no pun intended, drive growth. Uh, and they seem to have chosen both EVs uh, and batteries. And obviously, they've been uh, investing in those sectors very, very, very aggressively. And so it's a real risk to the Western auto industry. China is subsidizing those industries. They're able to charge less for their prices. Tesla, quite frankly, has figured this out and is cutting prices. They're ahead of the game compared to some of the other Western com uh, companies. Uh, that uh, are, are highlighting how expensive it is to build uh, to build these 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 new autos, and then we have the UAW settlement. Are they going to increase wages uh, significantly? Um, and so it, it does create quite the predicament for Western companies. That, to me, is what the real focus should be uh, by Western uh, governments and companies right now. What is China's goal in the auto sector? Um, not so much what China's GDP is going to do over the next uh, couple of quarters. They're going to keep right. that economy. This, to me, is a, is, a major, is a major issue. That's really fascinating. Derek, maybe given your long kind of track record co covering this, you could add your own opinion on what you think about autos in particular. Rushir Sharma also wrote a column for the FT about China 
China, saying have we reached uh, peak pessimism? And, and his conclusion, by the way, wasn't necessarily no. <laughs> he kind of said, you know, maybe it gets better or maybe there is, a, you know, a crisis coming. And one of the few positives he could cite was actually the auto market, which is ironic. Yeah, I think Nancy's put her finger on it, and you have as well. Um, there's a story here that can, gets conflated with China's actual performance. And the story here is the Chinese are absolutely have moved up the technology ladder. Not that they're at the top, but they've moved up. And they are competing with Western multinationals in more areas, and the Western multinationals are frightened. And the fact that they're frightened is relevant, but it doesn't mean China's economy is collapsing. It means their prospects in China are dimming. Uh, on the econ side, you know, straight econ, I think you, you said it at the outset, I think we're seeing a little bit of a turn in the economy, um, so it's going to be a little bit better in the second half of the year than the first half. It's already better than last year, so people talking about a crisis, uh, that doesn't make much sense. Uh, if you were talking about a crisis this year, you should have been talking about it last year. My answer to whether we've reached peak China pessimism is definitely no. Hmm. Uh, Ten years from now, the Chinese economy will be slower and weaker than it is. That is almost a guarantee unless you see a huge policy reversal. So short-term peak pessimism, maybe, maybe even probably. Uh, Long-term peak pessimism, no, this is just the start. China's going to get worse. One more quickly for each of you. Derek, given that, if you were um, consulting with a multinational, a U.S. company, who is trying to figure out, like, take a Starbucks, right? It's not an area that's nationally sensitive, but um, they can either decide to invest more there or not. What would your advice be? Uh, well, it isn't nationally sensitive, so the door is open for Starbucks the way it's not for some other companies, and we're starting to see that with, with Apple and Tesla. But you also have to realize that the nationalism matters even in insensitive topics. So for Starbucks, the question is, you know, you can sell a lot to Chinese customers unless you offend the Chinese government. Hmm. And then they'll target you on nationalist grounds, even though coffee doesn't matter very much. And that's a trade-off. You know, how, how nice do you want to be to the Chinese government in order to sell? That's a great point and a line that a lot of companies have struggled with the last couple of years. Um, Nancy, I'll turn to you as well for the investor point of view here. So autos is one area you might be warning about. Other industries as well. I mean, semiconductors have the biggest revenue exposure, 30 percent to China. Tech, it, broadly speaking, has somewhere around 15 percent. You mentioned companies like Micron in the past, pharmaceuticals. I mean, where are the biggest vulnerabilities or, or have a lot of these stocks already priced these concerns in? So I'm an economist, not a stock analyst. I would just warn companies that China will no longer be a driver of growth. They will be a headwind to your earnings and your revenues. And as Eric suggests, they could turn you off just like that um, if you do something that offends them. It's not a capitalist country. It's not a Western country. And for some reason, I don't think the West has really uh, embraced that yet, particularly many, many of the CEOs who just view China as this big driver uh, of their revenues and earnings. I also agree strongly um, that uh, China is done, not just cyclically, but secularly driving growth. They have declining population, and the government knows this. Uh, they know they can't ease aggressively. They'll just create more bubbles, um, and then they'll create more busts. Yeah. And so Beijing is easing very casually, the currency very cautiously. The currency is on, uh, at risk of declining on the downside. That's an embarrassment uh, to the leadership. They want that RMB to have a okay, global reserve-like currency platform. And so if they ease too aggressively here, that at the end of the day, uh, they're going to lose that uh, support. So 
cyclically, a little bit better growth secularly, uh, they're done. Yeah, I, I have so many more questions. We're going to have to bring it back for a reprisal. Thank you both mm-hmm. uh, for your clear thoughts on this matter. We really appreciate it. Derek Scissors and Nancy Lazar. China will definitely be on the agenda at CNBC's Delivering Alpha event on September 28th. You can still register by scanning that QR code on the screen or heading over to CNBCEvents.com. Coming up, Instacart's IPO Roadshow is underway and the company wants a valuation of around $9 billion, which is about 25% of what it was worth two years ago. Good or bad news for new investors. We'll talk about that. Plus, Jeffrey's upgrading Instacart quasi-rival DoorDash. We'll talk to the analyst behind that note and why he says ads are the key to their earnings growth. That's next here on The Exchange. Welcome back. Instacart kicks off its roadshow today, targeting a valuation that's just about a quarter of its worth during a 2021 fundraising round and what could be a bleak sign for tech IPOs this year. Deirdre Bosa joins us now for today's Tech Check. Deirdre, listen, I, I love it. I love it because for everybody else outside of the IPO world and the bankers and, you know, you know the, the public investor is going to get this at a much more uh, decent valuation. Right. They're not buying it at the peak. At least we know that, right? It was that valued at nearly $40 billion in this last round. So that's going to create some losers. I've been looking at this list, Kelly. 38 investors in that round, many of them first-time new investors. A lot of them follow on as well, though. The Sequoia, the Andreessen Horowitz that will make money from this because they were there in the early rounds. But this is interesting because if you look back to the IPOs of 2019 and 2021, when we saw those big booms, and you really, we look back now and the retail investors, they bought them at the peak. And look at this. This is the Renaissance IPO ETF. And it tells you that if you bought a lot of the names of the last few years on their IPO dates, when they saw that pop, um, they would have lost money by now and certainly underperformed some of the major indexes. So this could be, I'm with you, Kelly, this could be a very positive development and a chance for retail investors to get into a household name like Instacart that has been around forever, but is only now investable to them. Real quick, because we're about to speak to the analysts for more granularity, Deirdre, but you covered DoorDash. And the, would, would you consider DoorDash a rival for Instacart? It's hard to say. Um, They both do delivery. Instacart has larger basket sizes, right, because it's groceries versus food delivery. But they're both starting to encroach on each other's space. Uh, DoorDash is moving into groceries. They're building up its advertising model. Instacart's already there. So it's trying to be a little bit more like DoorDash in terms of offering different (laughs) kinds of e-commerce e-commerce goods on their platform. So that is seen as, you know, the closest comp. But I will say that Instacart will, at least it's at the top range of its pricing, is offered at a discount to DoorDash. So DoorDash perhaps seen as yes. still the more interesting play. Great point. Deirdre, thank you very much, our Deirdre Bosa. And sticking with the topic, DoorDash shares are jumping because Jeffrey's upgraded the stock today from underperformed to hold, citing some underappreciated tailwinds. Joining me now is John Colantoni, the analyst behind that call. John, uh, welcome. I thought it was interesting what Deirdre just said, that in some ways Instacart wants to emulate DoorDash. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so our analysis, uh, you know, shows two things. One, that the advertising business is just getting started and that underlying performance of unit economics is getting better and will continue to get better. And, you know, I think one of the things that did give us more confidence around improving unit economics was the Instacart disclosures Hmm. from the IPO, where they showed that the grocery, a pure play grocery business can be profitable. 
can have a large advertising business. And that gave us more confidence to assume better profitability for DoorDash's own grocery and convenience business, which was the major swing factor in driving our increased EBITDA assumptions. That's really interesting. You know, it, it still strikes me as maybe not a great sign that a close comparison for Instacart was basically an underperform <laughs> at the time when the company's trying to go public. But like you said, it can still make money on these transactions. I guess the question for Instacart and for DoorDash are, you know, how, how, what is growth like these days? From what I understand, DoorDash's overall revenue growth, their sales growth is better than Instacart's. But why do you think that these numbers are, um, you know, they're not 30%, it's not, it's not cloud computing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that DoorDash has done better than we expected is they've been able to deliver sustained growth in their core underlying U.S. restaurant delivery business. And it's been in the mid-teens, according to our assumptions, which is very important because that business actually delivers over 100 percent of the the company's total profitability. But I think that what they've been able to do is layer in things on top of the restaurant, U.S. restaurant delivery business, including international restaurant delivery and grocery and convenience. And one of our concerns was that these new businesses, it would be more difficult. It would be difficult for them to make them profitable. And I think that what the Instacart disclosure has shown us is that they could potentially be profitable over the long term. And so if the businesses that are delivering more of your future growth are are seeing improved profitability yeah. that I think that that is that is a positive for the overall profitability of the company. No, that's really look, that's it's perfectly timed uh, for the discussion that we'll be having around Instacart as as my groceries are on their way to the, <laughs> to the house from Costco as we speak. So then you mentioned advertising and I just want to drill down quickly before you go. How important is something like advertising to the model of a DoorDash or an Instacart going forward? I mean, how how big can that really be for them? The advertising business is is very vital to the profitability of the company. Uh, advertising comes through at very high incremental margins. And if they can drive a large advertising business, then that is really a po- very, uh, it's a positive for overall profit improvement for the company over time. You know, we think it doesn't need to be uh, you know, it's not. Uh, it doesn't need to be Amazon levels of profit penetration for this business model to work. We're assuming less than two percent penetration of gross bookings wow. from the advertising business over time. And despite that, we have EBITDA estimates that are about ten percent ahead of consensus. Interesting. And I think the grocery and, and and convenience business is actually where we see advertising penetration being highest. Yeah. And that's largely because it has more exposure to enterprise customers, CPG customers, and they have a larger advertising budget. So I think, again, that's another thing that we learned from the Instacart disclosures. Yeah, I'm always so bored scrolling these apps. I'm like, I would would take advertising. Please just give me some idea for dinner and I'll take it. John, we'll leave it there. Really appreciate you joining us today. And I love the paint color, by the way. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. John Colantoni with Jeffries. Still to come, shares of Exxon are up more than 175% since activist firm Engine Number no. 1 first sent that letter to shareholders. It's more than double crude oil's gain over the same time. We will speak with Engine CEO Jennifer Grancio about where they're seeing opportunities next when the exchange comes back.
Welcome back. Shares of Exxon have nearly doubled since hedge fund activist hedge fund engine number one successfully sent three of its nominees to the oil giant's board. The San Francisco-based fund was just six months old at the time, launching a campaign to turn Exxon away from fossil fuels and shifting its focus to more ESG. So more than two years on, has its involvement made a noticeable difference beyond the share price? Let's ask our next guest. Joining us from Josh Brown's Future Proof Conference are Jennifer Grancio, engine number one CEO, with our very own Bob Bassani. Welcome to both of you. Bob? Kelly, uh, good to see you as always. Beautiful Huntington Beach, California. Jennifer Grancio is the CEO of Engine Number One. Thanks for joining us. You know, a couple months ago, a little bit of news here. You, you, Engine Number One announced you were selling your ETF business. You're going to be going with it to uh, uh, TCW, the big uh, asset manager. What was behind that move? What was the decision there? Yeah, so if you think about engine number one and everything we set out to do, we have an alts business and an ETF business. And from a proof of concept perspective, the active funds like NetZ and SUP have done very well. And so there's an opportunity to be acquired and scale the business, which is terrific. You need scale to grow an ETF business. And TCW is looking to really underwrite their active equity and their ETF business. And when is that deal going to close? Hopefully very soon. You're going to go with them? I am. So you're going to be managing the ETF business, the, the whole thing that you became famous for. And you became famous for taking on Exxon, getting a board seats out there, making a difference to them. But what everyone's noticed is since then, there's been no big new campaigns, no big proxy fights from you, no picking on some other people at this point. What, what's changed? Is there some change in strategy going on? No, I mean, I would say our change, our, our strategy, pardon me, has been very consistent since the beginning. And so Exxon was an opportunity to, to release value. Somebody had to be an activist. And so we had to go in to drive change and put new people on the board. Um, a lot of the work that we've done since then, hostile activists just wasn't the right tool to pull out of the toolbox. We've done very constructive work. Um, Coke and Republic Services, for example, just a little while ago, announced a relationship where Republic is a waste company. They're doing more high-quality recycled content. Coke needs recycled content, and we matchmake, and we've driven value in both companies. So you're not abandoning the sort of quasi-activist stance, but the hostile proxy thing is not the way you want to go anymore. Is that the many, point? Many times being very active investors, but not being hostile is the right way to go. So you, we have a couple of your ETFs that are out there you're still managing. The Transform Climate ETF, these are companies benefiting from the energy transition to net zero carbon emissions. You've got the Transform Supply Chain ETF uh, for companies for supply chain transformation. Explain how this all comes together as part of a, a package to try to change the world. Yeah, thank you. I mean, if you think of the average portfolio today, the average portfolio in the core is so heavy megatech. And so really what these products do, both SAP on transform supply chain and NetZ on the energy transition and transform climate, is they let you take some out of your core and invest it in these trends. And these are enormous trends. If you think about energy transition, we're investing $5 trillion a year. And there's a complicated interconnected system of big public companies. And the ones that win are going to create huge value. It's what NetZ does. Supply chain, you know, unfortunately, the world's deglobalizing. We put everything far away, and then supply chains totally broke. And so, again, we're seeing a huge trend of manufacturers moving back to the U.S., and there's a lot of value that can be created for investors. Now, engine number one has a private capital fund, too. In July, you announced you're going to put $780 million into Valley. That's a Brazilian base metal mm -hmm. maker through its private capital arm. You have a 3% stake right now. It, what's the objective of this investment? This is a lot different. Now you're directly investing in a big, you own 3% of a very large company right now. 
Yeah, if you think about you think about what engine number one does on the ETF business, we've been able to focus on public companies and realizing value in public companies as we go through the energy transformation and these huge changes. But if you think about the energy transformation, like we are very short some of the materials. So we're going to electrify everything. We need a lot more minerals and materials that go into electrification. So on the private and alt side of our business, the volley investment is a, is a big one that helps unlock that bottleneck. What I like about you is you're not worried about tech. You, industrial companies are out there. They're leading the way in the decarbonization business, reindustrialization of America. And that's kind of what you're emphasizing, right? Absolutely. People need those industrials and they need to play these big trends in their portfolios. Jennifer Grancio, CEO of Engine Number One. We'll look to you for more ETFs. She's not going away. I want to note, Kelly, she's going in the ETF business at TCW, now a different kind of company. Kelly, back to you. And thank you for bringing that to my attention. It's been fascinating. Uh, Jennifer, thank you. And, and to Bob as well, uh, Bob Pisani. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.